We're going to continue our study in the gospel, but we are going to go back to 1 Corinthians, but this time not to chapter 15. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. My intent had been to go from this point and kind of move forward in more of a topical style when it comes to the gospel. Um, but I just, I, I went into my study this morning even hoping for that, but it just didn't quite work out. And uh, so I appreciate your patience, but the, the whole point is it's hard to come to a study and to not know everything that you're going to find in the study and to be able to address it topically um, and to ask questions that call for answers from everywhere in Scripture and, and everything that's mentioned in Scripture. Um, it's so much easier to do a line upon line. So I'm at least going to run back to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 1 because that's where Paul first mentions uh, the gospel. So let's consider the gospel from 1 Corinthians 1. Specifically, we're going to give our attention to verse 17. That's where it says this. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So let's consider this tonight. Father, help us as we study this portion of your word. We ask that we would uh, glean from it and be challenged um, in the way you'd want us to be challenged from what uh, Paul gave us here. And uh, we thank you for giving us your word. We pray that you would allow us to understand it clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. I think most of you know that I drink coffee. The only question then is, well, how do you drink it? Do you drink it black or cream or sugar? And, you know, I didn't start drinking coffee until later in my college days. And I must say that when I began drinking coffee, I had to add a fair amount of cream and sugar. But my way of taking coffee now is just a little bit of cream to give it some color. Now, when it comes to my dear wife, she is just beginning to, to get into coffee a little bit. Uh, but in my opinion, it's more of a drop of coffee and a mug of hot chocolate. Because there is so many extras in there that the coffee taste is almost non-existent. And in my opinion, I would rather drink coffee black than to add all this creamer because, in my opinion, that is, adding all those things makes the coffee no good. And in a similar fashion, Paul is addressing preaching the gospel when he speaks to the Corinthians in chapter 1. These are the church uh, folks who were kind of like a lot of other folks at churches, as you would imagine, it was a church full of divisions. So chapter 1, verse 11 says this. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers, and that church needed to be set straight. And one of the first things that Paul deals with, because they were so uh, intent on their own way of things, he brings up one of the most important things, most eternal matters, and that is the gospel. And notice what he says about the gospel. He says in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So against uh, the notion 
that as an apostle, he was commissioned to disciple by baptizing. You might get that from Matthew 28, 19, go into all the world and baptize them. Make disciples baptizing them. Instead of make disciples by baptizing, Paul sets forth in a very clear fashion his responsibility is to spread the gospel worldwide. That's his duty, but there's a great danger that he brings up at the end of verse 17 that we need, we're going to pay close attention to tonight. And here's the danger. It says this, And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So my brothers and sisters in the Lord, we have taken multiple weeks to go over what it means to make the gospel known. Now we have to consider how that must not be done. You see, there's a wrong way to doctor things. And then in our study tonight, I want us to consider two questions. The first is this. How is the gospel made empty? And then the second question is, what is the gospel emptied of? Okay. First question, what is, how is the gospel made empty? The gospel is emptied by adding words to it. Verse 17 says this. When it talks about him preaching the gospel, it says, not with words of eloquent wisdom. The NIV says, with wisdom and eloquence. Now, what that does not mean is that gospel preaching is supposed to be poor public speaking. Strangely enough, in our day, it is quite fashionable to be unpolished. People, When people string uh, together intelligent thoughts, that, that seems a bit too polished. But if you're raw, if you're genuine, if you're real... You make mistakes, and you're not always together, you're not always with it. And it's even the case that some speakers or salespeople will actually plan mistakes in their delivery for the express purpose of making people like them more. Now, what Paul is saying here is not condemning being able to present a point with clarity. He's not condemning that. And he's not celebrating making mistakes in delivery. The point isn't that preaching shouldn't be done with a clear presentation. That's not his issue. But years ago, it has been misunderstood that this passage is endorsing untrained pastors. And it's kind of denouncing trained pastors. The mascot from years gone by has been that untrained kind of redneck sort of preachers are kind of like uh, the donkey's jawbone of Samson. If God is able to use such a primitive tool, then God can use an untrained pastor. Now, there's a lot of issues there that I can't get bogged down into, but let me at least say this. God can and does use all kinds of people, whomever he pleases. Yet, and as this very passage argues, a wrong preaching of the gospel proves to be disastrous. And we find the same truth and disaster in American history, as people like John, uh, Jonathan Edwards pointed out. And, and perhaps let me draw a parallel this way. It is possible for an untrained person to perform a successful surgery. But most who do that are going to do more harm than good. So to perhaps reinforce this in our minds, the idea that what Paul is not calling for is some 
mistaken, poor public speaking, poor delivery of the gospel to go against that. Just think about some of the preaching in the New Testament. Think about what Paul or Peter said on the day of Pentecost, recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. Remember how he made a clear point, how he then took several Old Testament passages and strung them together and, and used them as support, and it came to a climax, and he made this point that you have crucified the one that God has exalted. He made a clear point, and the people got the point because it says in the text that they were pierced to their heart. It was clear and effective communication. Now, or you could also consider what Paul himself said, and he said this to Festus. This is recorded in Acts 26, beginning of verse 23. Paul says Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And he, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. You see, gospel preaching ought to be crystal clear so that the essential components and implications of the gospel are made known. A gospel preacher needs to be able to say that God made man for his own glory. That man failed to bring glory to God, and therefore he is under the just condemnation of God. Jesus has been set forth as a propitiation for our sin, which is our falling short of his glory, and man's only hope is to repent of sin and to trust in what Jesus Christ did alone for the forgiveness of all of his sin. He needs to be able to string those kinds of points together. And doing so, that's not an example of what Paul is saying is, is eloquent wisdom. Instead, what Paul means is that gospel preaching must not accommodate itself to the appetites of the audience. Paul said this, that this gospel preaching not be with words of eloquent wisdom. The NAS says, not with cleverness of speech. We see in verse 22 that the Greeks prized wisdom. It says the Greeks seek wisdom. And wisdom is a good thing. The Greeks were known for their philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. Plato was the one who said, the measure of a man is what he does with power. He said, at the touch of love, everyone becomes a poet. Aristotle was the one who said, we are what we repeatedly do. And the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Now, those are the kinds of things that really make you think and consider. But the problem with wisdom that Paul is addressing is shown by the origin. Look down in chapter 2, verse 5, at the end of the verse. So that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of, and here's the origin, men. But, here's the contrast, in the power of God. You see, the wisdom of men is full of selfishness. That's what James 3 teaches us, full of selfish ambition. The aim is not to discern and understand what God has made, but in human wisdom, it's how can I win? How can I advance? How can I get forward? So even in Paul's day, what we find is that people want to win. So we look back in chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says and asks the question, where is the debater of this age? 
all the way back in Paul's day, people liked to argue and debate and try to win people over to their side. We have whole social platforms for those kinds of things now. What Paul here is saying when he talks about gospel preaching and cleverness in speech is this. He is warning about the danger of rebranding the gospel, of reformulating its contents. Because according to worldly wisdom, the gospel needs to be appealing. So it needs to be repackaged in such a way that it is appealing. You say, well, how is that done? Well, it all depends on the audience. All depends on the people. So the way it's done in Corinth is to add a, a little bit of wisdom. And the way it's done in Galatia, where you have the Judaizers, is to add a, a pinch of the law. Because that is what will make it appealing. Now today, Christianity has often been reformulated to accommodate science. You see, science doesn't allow for the supernatural. So the gospel must be stripped of its supernatural elements and refashioned. And the result, once science has done that, is you no longer have a gospel. All of its supernatural elements have been taken away, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which cannot be scientifically repeated. It's a miracle. Or we have something today like liberation theology, where the gospel must be re-engineered to mean that Jesus wanted to liberate the oppressed. Therefore, the gospel call is to support the oppressed, especially those who are marginalized because of their color, their gender, their race. And uh, what we need to do is commit to social justice and to any and all revolutions and movements that work to that end. And when the gospel has had its effect, then people will finally be treated equally. I mean, Jesus himself said in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So, wouldn't it be reasonable for all to accept this gospel to love their neighbor by committing to social causes? You see, that's how you reformulate the gospel so that it's more appealing to the culture that you live in. That's liberation theology. So what we need to note in particular is that when preaching is done in this way, so often the religious terms are not removed. They're just redefined. You'll still talk about resurrection. Still talk about Jesus. You'll still talk about deliverance. But when they talk about it, it's not what we have been taught for years that it meant. It's redefined. And Paul's point in this verse is that you're not supposed to make accommodations to make the message more appealing. Obviously, a, a, any minister of the gospel or anyone who's speaking God's words, he needs to take into account the understanding of the audience. So when Peter preached at Pentecost, he knew he was talking to Jews who had a, a broad understanding of God and had a knowledgeable understanding of the Old Testament. But when Paul spoke at Athens to people who were not so well-educated in, in religion, he had to speak to them in a different fashion. But that is completely different than changing the message of the gospel. Because changing the message of the gospel is really is what is at stake 
in Paul's mind in verse 17. And we know that because of what we find in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Even when you keep religious terms and cite scripture, you can still change the message. Look at what Paul says in chapter 2, 4, and 5. My speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom. In contrast, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest, and here it is, in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, when the gospel is reformulated by adding to it to make it more appealing, people rest in the wisdom of men and not in the power of God. There's the point. Say, what does that mean? When people are resting in the wisdom of men, the gospel has been gutted. Its power has been emptied from it. You say, but it's power to what? Well, the gospel is emptied of its power to save. That's what it says in the verse 17. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. A modified gospel is a powerless gospel. When the wisdom of man is added to the gospel, it is fundamentally changed. And we know that because that's exactly what Paul meant in chapter 2, verse 5, when he draws attention to where the faith of people rests. Does it rest in God or does it rest in men? And when the gospel is rebranded, faith rests in men. A modified gospel then does not save people from their sin. It's a gospel that doesn't save. So imagine this. The gospel, as they would say, is preached in this modified way. And when it is preached, it results in no true conversion. It may be that some people profess to become Christians, but there's no new life. There only remains condemnation. The gospel's power to save is empty. And we know that what's being talked about here is power to save, power unto salvation, because we have a cross-reference in Romans 1.16. Paul says, it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God that brings salvation. You see, if you change the gospel to make it more appealing, then it doesn't bring salvation. It's gutted of its power to save, and that's no good. Now, if you doctor up your coffee, I guess that there's still some benefit when it comes to caffeine. I guess. And for some people, that's the only way they take their gospel, their, their, uh, their coffee. My opinion, if you add to it like that, it makes the coffee worthless. Now, when Paul talks here about the gospel, he says if you add to it, it's gutted. It's made empty of its power. So, brothers and sisters in the Lord, we need to be so careful to maintain the terms and the truths of the gospels. Or else, we would present a gospel that does nothing, that does no good. I remember a couple years back when a local priest talked to me uh, during the Easter season, and he wanted to be able to ecumenically celebrate Easter. And when I explained that there was way too much disagreement for us to be able to do that, he said this, or at least made this point. He said, but can't we all celebrate the love that Jesus demonstrated by making the ultimate sacrifice? And I say that is tricky. Because obviously, there's no greater love than someone lays down his life. 
The scriptures say that. Jesus said that. But we cannot think that the gospel is simply that Jesus showed us a good picture of what love is. Because what that has done is to strip out what we found so plainly in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died as a penalty in my place, as has been prophesied. You can't take those things out of the gospel and believe that it's actually going to have power to save. That's why it's so important that when we present the gospel, we present the gospel not with some appealing wisdom that would suit our audience, but with the plain teaching of Scripture. Father, help us as we consider this. Thank you for the chance that we have to have heard the gospel and to have understood it plainly and clearly and to be recipients of your saving work in our life. Father, we pray that you will help us to maintain what you have said, uh, not to seek to change things to make uh, what we do, what we say more appealing so that more people will perhaps like us uh, or attend our church or um, anything that would would just get us more but give us growth that is not truly growth. Father, we pray that you will help us to maintain the gospel, to protect it, and Lord, that you would help us to be able to discern uh, between gospels, and there are many of them, between gospels that are simply appealing to the ear but really don't change the heart and don't bring about the forgiveness of sin. Father, we pray that you'll help us in Jesus' name. Amen.